Good afternoon. My name is Kathy Connor, and I'm the curator of the George Eastman Legacy Collection, and I'm pleased to see so many of you here today. Um, I, it is a personal pleasure for me to introduce Claudia Pretoline, who has been, in many ways, um, I consider her not only family, but many people for years while she was researching here from 2010 through literally 2017 to prepare her thesis and this talk. When we would leave our study center to go for lunch, she would many times eat with us in the lunchroom. She got to know many people here on staff. In fact, many people thought she worked with us up in the study center, but she was always here researching. And I do have a personal little story. I always consider myself sort of the one that introduced Claudia to her husband today, and that was because um, one day when she did decide to eat in our cafe, um, there was no room. And so I looked around and I said, oh, there's Ben. He's sitting there by this table. So I introduced them. And the rest, as we say, is history. They ended up getting married here in Rochester and actually had their wedding reception at our um, Eastman House Council um, Christmas party because they got married in December. And so I am thrilled to have her here today because I have to say, even though we pulled things out from the archives for her, answered questions, I never really understood completely what she was going to write on and what her thesis was going to be. She was nice enough to send us a copy when it was complete, all bound. We have it in the study center archive, but I don't read Spanish. So I was not able to read it. So I am here today to learn about her research and to learn how she got all of this information from our collection. But I do want to give you a few of her qualifications. Claudia holds a BA in communications and received her MA and PhD in art history from the National Autonomous University of Mexico. And for 10 years, she worked as a personal assistant to the Mexican photographer, and I don't know, I'll say this right, Graciel Eturbide? That's what I mean about the Spanish. So um, the rest of it is going to be her telling you her story. And she is she's a little nervous about the language barrier. So what I'd love you to do is just listen to her talk and then at the end, we'll do some questions and answers and stuff rather than interrupting. And then I will, if she doesn't get the questions, I'll help with that and stuff like here at the end. Okay? Enjoy the talk. I know you're in for a treat. Claudia? Well, uh, first, I'd like to thank you all for being here. Can you hear me well? Yeah. Uh, thank you to the Jersey Museum for the invitation and special thanks to Kathy. Connor and Jesse Pierce for having me in their study center for nine months from 9.30 to 4.30 every single day. And thanks to Nick, uh, Nick Marshall for facilitating this conversation. Uh, I would like, I will only request to leave time for questions at the end and I'm, I'll be happy to answer one first question before I begin. If you're wondering how a Mexican historian ended up being interested in Kodak advertising, to be honest with you, I always think of my grandfather, uh, who was a photojournalist in Mexico City. This is an image of him during uh, President Nixon's visit to Mexico City. This was in 1969. and. I think I'm so, I get very sentimental around this photograph because I think I inherited the love of, uh, for photography from that old cranky man <laughs> that didn't let anyone in his photo lab 
So I just remember one day sneaking into the photo lab and seeing this bottle of chemicals that I didn't know that they were chemicals at the time. And the brand was Kodak. So I remember that very clear in my mind. Um, years after I, uh, I learned that I, um, that smelly room was caused by photochemicals that I didn't know at the time. And I also learned that people could be trapped in paper and also film strips. And I think that's the moment where I fell in love with photography. So as you can imagine, when I grew up, I wanted to become a photographer and I failed. Not only because I didn't have the dedication and discipline to be a good photographer, but also because I discovered that uh, writing about photographs as opposed to taking them offered me a different perception of time. The camera allows a photographer to capture an image in a fraction of a second. While thinking and writing about photography involves some sort of meditation that can last years and it probably never ends. Both the photographer and the historian are interpreters. So I decided to devote my time to interpret and signify those images produced by photographers. In the year 2000, after I graduated from college, one of my first jobs allowed me to work for an exhibition, The Color as a Language by William Eggleston. Those photographs once described by Hilton Kramer of the New York Times as, quote, perfectly ordinary and boring, got me thinking about the images that we call snapshots. Photographs taken by amateurs to document an event of everyday life made purely for private, not public consumption. consumption. The, photographer, the photographer Paul Strand has said that a snapshot is uh, the result of, of the scientific development of photography and the development should be welcomed and used with sensitivity. It can be used by many people for many different uh, reasons, by amateurs, by professionals, and also by artists. And that was the case of William Eggleston. When I enrolled in the art history program, the study of images produced by amateurs was not, and still is not, common. Uh, it's, it's not a common subject in any, in any history class or art history class. So the studies of this practice, commonly referred as vernacular, have not been the priority of the dominant discourse of the history of photography, or at least not in Mexico. Therefore, when I came to the George Eastman Museum for the first time back in 2011, my initial interest was to find the resources that will help me to write a history of photography that was inclusive of the commercial processes that simplify the photographic practice for creating new visual languages. Understanding Kodak and the rise of the photographic industry will allow me to explore the production of a massive world of images taken by amateur photographers around the world and also to establish what role Kodak advertising images played 
in formulating the basis of the snapshot aesthetic, or so I thought. I was very naive. <laughs> Among the almost 90,000 advertisements that the, the Eastman Museum holds in their advertising collection, I review about 100 binders with thousands of ads produced between 1920 and 1940 for a variety of cameras, films, photographic papers, and other products for both ama amateur and professional photographers. So thank you, Kathy, and thank you, Jesse, for facilitating that. I ended up uh, focusing only on 38 binders with more than 2,000 ads from where I chose only 43 for my final research. In addition, I consulted other sources of information, such as Kodak magazines. The Kodak magazine was a monthly and institutional illustrated magazine uh, distributed by to Kodak employees with news regarding the photographic industry, clubs, and different activities conducted in every factory, department, and office that belong to the Eastman Kodak Company. I also look at the trade circulars. Those were uh, published also by Kodak and for Kodak dealers on how to promote their cameras, information about distribution of advertise, advertisements and magazines in the United States, advice on how to sell products and how to talk to clients. The Kodaks and the Kodak supplies were uh, catalogs that would show, would show cameras and other photographic products and that would give the dealer information regarding characteristics of these products. Kodakery, a magazine for uh, amateur photographers, was a monthly and, monthly and illustrated magazine aimed to the amateur photographer with advice on how to take photographs, what to photograph, and information about how to use cameras, films, and other photographic products manufactured by Kodak. The magazine published, published some photographs sent by amateurs as an example for other photographers and promoted different photo contests between their readers around the world. And this is where I learned more about uh, Snapchat photography. Uh, and the Kodak salesman uh, that had the same purpose of the Kodak trade circular, it was a replacement of this magazine from uh, starting in 1931. I also visited the Kodak historical collection at the University of Rochester. Since they have uh, the other issues uh, for Kodak salesmen from 1920 to 1929, the Kodakery from 1930 to 1932, and pictures of Snapchat magazine from 1933 to 1940. This is another example of uh, this publications, and this is Kodakery. In Kodakery, you can see that the image of the magazine changed in 1930, but the content and this is pictures of the Snapchat magazine that was uh, the replacement of Kodakery in 1930. It was a smaller illustrative publication for amateurs. And all of this uh, materials gave me so much information in terms on how the company uh, used to plan, to 
plan their marketing strategies and how important uh, advertising was for them. I also visited the Edward Steichen Archive in the Museum of Modern Art, where they had another part of these advertisements that some of them I found that they, we don't have them here at the museum. So we have, I think we, you have around 12, and they have more like 30 advertisements in, your, in their collection. So in my research, I analyzed the business and marketing models that the Eastman Kodak implemented in order to become a leader in photography, not only for the amateur, but also for the professional. The cinema world and other fields where the camera became an important tool for documenting. However, my key argument is focused on the viral change that happened in the representation of the photographic act in advertising. Kodak ads went from changing the, the look of the heavily, heavily outfitted photographer to the easily carried camera that belongs to modern times, and from using images that look like amateur photos to convince and promote among, among their audience a vision of a brand's essential role in good life. From the first years when the company was in charge of most of its own advertising campaigns until they signed with the J. Walter Thompson Agency, the Eastman Kodak Company set the basis of what the amateur photographer should look like and created a series of guidelines that define how amateur images, so often called snapshots, should be produced. With the famous slogan, you press the button, we do the rest, the Eastman Kodak Company transformed the idea of the photographic medium. This message appeared for the first time in 1889, and the simplicity of the concept was used in countless advertisements created by the company. Everyone could take photographs with a Kodak camera. By the year 1920, the first year that my research focuses on, Kodak stood for leadership in photography, the same leadership that will continue for decades. I learned from the Kodak magazines that like other areas of the company, the advertising department was highly specialized. They promoted idealized images to the consumer and they made their dealers promoter, promoters of these images by providing them with resources to make the greatest possible use of their window displays that would then attract and hold the attention of the passerby. So there's uh, so much document documentation about how the advertising department work here that hasn't been explored before. And it was a real treat for me to go through all of these magazines and see how Kodak had their own uh, team and their own photographs that will create those ads that otherwise we've only seen in books, but we don't know how they were produced. Once a new idea or uh, product passed all tests and was ready for production, the advertising department will come up with a name for the new product. 
between 1920 and 1940, some of the most iconic products launched or promoted by the company were, were the autographic cameras, uh, the Cine Kodak, the Retina 35 millimeters, the Vanity Kodaks, and films like Kodakolor, Verichrome, and Kodachrome. At the end of the 19th century, improvements of the halftone processes allowed magazines to reproduce photographs. However, Kodak didn't begin using photography in its advertising until 1901. Kodak didn't begin um, by the sorry by the mid 1920s. Roughly 90% of the Kodak ads incorporated photographs, and this was because they looked too real to the consumer. They wanted to be a more, a more idealized image of the photographic act. Then in general, between 1920 and the mid-1930s, the use of photographic advertisements in magazines increased over uh, 40%. So for Kodak, the selection of the magazines in which their advertisements were to appear was based on how many copies of any publication were printed of each each issue and the class of people that would read those publications. By 1926, Kodak was ranked among the largest national advertisers, advertisers in the United States. So you can, if, uh, if you go through all of these publications, you can find all of that information in the Kodak magazines, the Kodak salesman. This is something that wasn't available for me to go to the Kodak company and ask them <laughs> about this. But if you go to all of those uh, publications, you, there's a lot of information on how the advertisements uh, were created. So during the first years of the company, Kodak's primary sales model was the image of the Kodak girl, an idealized figure that appeared in advertisements for the first time in 1993. Kodak promoted its products in a variety of women's magazines, not only as a way to document domestic life, but also as an essential accessory for the modern woman. The, uh, the ad that is in Spanish, I can only find it in Mexico. I don't think we have it here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so one of the common readings, readings about the, the representations of these women in advertising has been associated with the idea that the simplification of the photographic act is more appropri appropriate to female amateurs. This idea is exemplified in this image published in 1923 in the Kodak Salesman magazine. It says it, says it all. Long words can complicate a simple instrument. Plain talk makes the most sales. Make it simple. So again, this idea that women uh, and children, and I'm skipping here the part of the brownie cameras, but that it's so easy that even women and children can take photographs. <laughs> this idea, uh, I think it was used and it was common during the time that these advertisements were produced. 
Despite the fact that it, the Eastman Coda continued to represent idealized women and girls uh, almost entirely within the domestic sphere, by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, those women depicted in various, in various advertising campaigns were not merely the objects of the male gaze. They became observers through the lens of the camera and captured what they saw in their in modern public spaces. So as any other company, company during those years, Kodak assumed that a simple language for female con consumers will make their products more approachable. However, a camera, unlike a, a vacuum cleaner, will provide women a medium to observe and represent not only the domestic space, but also made it acceptable for them to look at the public space so often restrained and occupied by men. So yes, we have women represented at home and documenting uh, whatever happens at, happens at home. But we also have these representations of women doing uh, more independent activities than, than other women in different uh, advertisements. Here I've found some examples of advertisements uh, produced for Japan. That was, uh, I think, was the only country that looked different. If, uh, if you go and see the ads in Mexico, they were exactly the same advertisements that we were that you were using here, except that they were in, in Spanish, like those two. And same with Argentina, same with Brazil, Latin America were, was using the same images. But I think it's it's important, and there are a couple of books about the Kodak girl uh, that I own so much for my research. It's the, the Nancy Martha uh, West, the Kodak and the Lens of Nostalgia, and of course the Kodak Girl book published recently that address uh, the importance of Kodak being um, a medium for women to uh, not only find a, a job, but also to be able to represent other spaces, not only the domestic space. So here are more examples on how uh, women were working with photography at the time. So by the 1930s, Kodak changed their visual strategy from the image of the Kodak girl to a particular concept of the, of the American family. Focused on the images produced by amateurs, by that time Kodak began working with uh, J. Walter Thompson. One of the largest advertising agencies in the world and the first to develop a global, a global footprint. For the Kodak campaigns, J. Walter Thompson hired the photographer Edward Steichen to make photographs for products such as Berrychrome, Kodachrome, the Giphy or Giphy cameras, and Cine Kodak. 
And according to Patricia Johnston, as a commercial photographer, Edward Steichen's work appear regularly in almost every mass circulation magazine published in the United States. And he became the most successful commercial photographer of the 1920s and the 1930s. So here are some examples of what Edward Steichen was doing at the time. Those are some um, images that he created for the Matson Line cruises and the cannon towels. And if you pay attention to the photographs, particularly this one, you'll see that there's like a particular style that he was uh, reproducing, or even like for advertisements. However, for the Berry Crumb campaign, Steichen was commissioned to take a series of photographs in Florida and New York, and he described his work process for Kodak in his book, Edward Steichen, A Life in Photography. According to the photographer, and I quote, to make each picture as real as possible, I work out the specific pr procedure. First, I set up the composition in a general way with people looking at some nondescript snapshots. And I just as was ready to take the photograph. I handed a set of, of snapshots to them. In every case, they were deeply interested in their expressions. And their expressions were spontaneous and real. So he was playing with the idea of using the snapshot aesthetic in, the, in his own work to create this idealized images for advertisements. <clears throat> Compared to other uh, commercial work that Edward Steichen photographed for different products, such as the ivory soap, the cannon towels, or the Jergens lotion, these images produced for Kodak were different in style, with a special interest in reproducing the candid and ordinary effects of snapshots taken by amateurs Steichen combined this, the aesthetic of informal appearance of these images into his own professional work to appeal the consumer's identification with the product. In this campaign, snapshots act like a bond between subjects represented, and the Kodak ads that prevail are idealized versions of the real images, images that the amateur photographers produce. Steichen was not the first or the last to use this particular style. Other photographers, such as Robert Frank, Lee Friedlander, Gary Winogrand, Stephen George, or even William Eggleston, will embrace the look of the snapshots, their banality, and if you want to call it, call it the lack of composition of the image in a careful and controlled way, just like Steichen did for its commercial purposes. So these are the ads that I found here that also uh, belong to the Museum of Modern Art in Queens. And uh, all of the, what these images are trying to do is trying to promote the photography as a way to keep memories and uh, also to save those memories for our 
family and to uh, have them treasured as that. But what Steichen was doing, he wasn't concerned about keeping those memories. He was concerned about creating this style in those images. And just to address that with the messages that Kodak was creating with their own campaigns. At the same time that this is happening, uh, I found really interesting that Kodak was promoting a different kind of photography between their employees. And there were another uh, organizations that I found that were really in, that are really interesting to see and I haven't found that many uh, studies about them. Those were the photo clubs, the international photographic salons, the photo context, and they had uh, talks and conferences and exhibitions around the world between Kodak employees in different, in different countries. So that what they were uh, promoting, it was more like a pictorial image in photography. And you'll see and find that those images were published in this uh, and promoted in different exhibitions around the world. The closest to the snapshot aesthetic that they were uh, promoting in uh, between their employees was this uh, poison squad, where they will have a contest between their employees, and they will give them cameras to take photographs, and they will have this particular uh, request that the, the image have to be taken and tell a story with them. So this is. Uh, it's really, it was really interesting for me to see that while they're, they're promoting a particular aesthetic for their armature photographers, within their employees, they're asking them to have these photographs with a particular style that is, is closer to the pictorial style that was reproduced at the end of the 19th century. So in terms of image making, the amateur practice and the production of hundreds of Kodak advertisement, advertisements promoted definitions of femininity, childhood, domestic life, leisure, and tourism. They reinforced the ideal of the American family as fundamental, fundamentally white and middle class and created a new educational way of taking photographs in terms of composition, style, poses and gestures by teaching the amateur what to see, how to see, and where to take the photographs. I can say that starting advertising campaigns is the only approach to understanding the production of the snapshots, but it's an approach that has to be taken into consideration before looking at photographs and trying to read into them using the same theory that applies to other mediums and images that are part of the history of art and the visual culture of our time. The abundance of artists who have intentionally adopted the snapshot aesthetic and the subjects of this type of photography have provided a new interest for a critical re-evaluation re of the history of these images. Historians and critics like Michel Frisot and Clément Chéreau in France or Jeffrey Batchen in the United States, among others, are devoting new studies about the aesthetic elements of the snapshot 
and their influence in the history of photography. However, like I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, there's still a lot to look for uh, in, in the different archives that contain advertisements produced by the company that was once a world leader in photography. Starting the dominant iconography and successful campaigns and products of a worldwide brand like Kodak provides an understanding on how they have contributed to our extensive visual culture. And um, I would like to thank Claudia. I now finally understand what she was doing. <laughs> thank you. I would be remiss and get hit by Nick Marshall if I do not tell you about our next Focus 45, which is process historian Mark Osterman, who's going to be talking here in the theater on August 19th at 12 noon. So do come back. He's going to be talking about the making of motion picture film. Okay? Enjoy the rest of your day, everyone. <laughs>